This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A man who worked to elect U.S. Senator Michael Bennett is now running against him. Arne Manconi is the Green Party Senate candidate in Colorado. He's a former county commissioner in Eagle County, and he's here to talk about what led him away from the Democrats to the Greens and what he'd hoped to accomplish in Washington if elected. Manconi does face a steep challenge, though. There are currently only around 12,000 registered Green Party members in Colorado. Arne, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you for having me here, Ryan. A little bit more about you. You spent two decades running a nonprofit that you founded called Snowboard Outreach Society. It mentors young people, many of whom live in poverty, gets them outdoors. You're the father of two, earned an MBA from the University of Denver. But I do want to start with this political evolution You served on the Eagle County Commission from 2000 to 2008 as a Democrat, and after that, you stayed active in the party, as I said, lobbied Senator Bennett on issues. What led you to break with the Democratic Party? Well, I campaigned for Bennett. I campaigned for Obama. I wanted to see wars ended. That's what Obama campaigned on. And in July of 2014, Obama continued the war in Iraq. He's been bombing seven countries. He's bombed doctors without border hospitals. I tried to see if we could get an authorization for military force. They ignored the Constitution and were in endless wars. So what got me involved is the realization that the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are basically the same party. There's the inside party and the outside party. We can't have endless wars. Then you take it into global warming, in an equality gap, and into racial injustice. And you see that these parties are just facilitating what the corporate elites want. You talked about uh, bombing uh, doctors without borders hospitals. You're not saying intentionally there, though. Well, they changed their story three times over the weekend. So I don't know if it w- they say it was an intentional, but look, they here's what's intentional about what they're doing. They're intentionally lying. They're telling us that only 169 people were killed by drone attacks, and the numbers are far outpacing that. They're telling us that we're in these wars to stop terrorism, yet we're continuing to breed terrorism. So I don't know what you call that, but what I call that is a very covert action that is immoral And I'm running for U.S. Senate because I feel as though our leaders, especially Michael Bennett in this election, is not speaking out against these wars. He's not he's facilitating uh, the way the oil and gas corporations are working in Colorado. He's not fighting to make sure that the banks were the bankers were uh, arrested for fraud. He's he's just taking five hours a day in order to raise somewhere around $14 million from Goldman Sachs, from the oil and gas industry, from uh, Big Pharma, from the healthcare industry, from lobbyists, so that, that he could have another six more years in order to do nothing. What's I mean, your source on five hours a day? Well, this is what... Uh, representatives like Israel, who has decided that he's not going to run again. This is when I go to Washington, D.C. to try to talk to Senator uh, Senator Udall, and I'm told by one of his former staff people, the reason he couldn't meet with you is because he's raising money, and these guys spend five hours a day. Um, isn't that a reality of holding uh, uh, the, that office 
given what the campaign finance rules are these days? Well, do you think Americans want their to pay with their taxpaying dollars $174,000 a year to representatives who are spending five hours a day raising tens of millions of dollars? That's not what I'm hearing when I go around the state and talk to citizens. They don't when Michael Bennett stands up and says he wants to make sure that you get money out of politics, well, I've got an answer for him. Don't vote for people who are taking money from corporations. Let me say that uh, Senator Bennett has touted his support for the Disclose Act, which is campaign finance reform legislation. You mentioned earlier uh, Israel, and that was a reference, I think, to Steve Israel. The, the yes, from New York. From New York. The Green Party has a detailed platform structured around four core principles, democracy, social justice, ecological sustainability, uh, and economic justice and sustainability. We have a link to the full Green Party platform at cprnews.org. And I'd like to ask you about some of the those points now. Your party supports a number of proposals that come with a potentially high price tag. For instance, a guaranteed minimum income that would put all Americans above the poverty line. And tuition-free college or vocational school for all Americans. Do you embrace those policies? And if so, how would you pay for them? Yeah, in general, I think uh, how I'd pay for them is the most important part is, as you you said before, I have uh, an MBA from the University of Denver, and I was a county commissioner, and we ran a $100 million budget. Uh, The federal budget uses about 53 percent of their their discretionary spending towards the military. That's about $620 billion each year. And then there's a slush fund called the Overseas Contingency Operation Budget of almost another $60 billion that I see it as a trillion-dollar budget when you add in security measures, the State Department. It's been reported at a trillion dollars. We could cut this budget by half that's a half a bill, that's a half a trillion dollars that's where you get the money for free college that's where you can help find green jobs and do an emergency green j- job just like a green job economy workforce just like what we did with the new deal where you get tens of millions of people back to work finding green jobs around water solar and wind so i don't know if you if you know this but there's never been an audit on the military defense budget. Never been an audit? There's not an audit, but they call for it. And when you sit in Senate hearings like I do in Washington, D.C., because I find it absolutely fascinating, is that you'll find senators who will talk about when is it that we're going to see an audit on the defense industry. Every other part of the government gets an audit, except for defense. And the reason we're not is because we have a military-industrial congressional complex that is running this country and making sure we have endless wars. This goes hand-in-hand with another Green Party plank supporting the closing of all overseas U.S. military bases unless they operate under a U.N. peacekeeping mission. Uh, The party also wants the U.S. to stop sending military aid to foreign countries. But how does that work? at a time when both Russia and China are aggressively seeking to expand their global influence and sometimes directly threatening American allies, fellow NATO members? Uh, well, <clears throat> here's a couple of parts to that answer. Uh, answer. 
Number one, we have about 800 military bases globally. All the other countries combined is 30. Um, That's a, a very large delta between the two. We have the largest military budget, and it compares to the next 10 countries. So Americans don't want to hear that we don't have enough money to spend on domestic issues, infrastructure, education, universal health care, free college, when we have endless amount of dollars in order to build up an empire that is going in decline. The other part to your question is, are Americans willing to continue facilitating a a government that's run by corporations in the top 1% that are committing war crimes, that aren't following the UN charters? I don't think so. I think Americans would like when 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 uh, that guy Trump talks about the rule of law. That, that guy, the yeah, Republican yeah, presidential nominee. That's the one, the orange guy. Um, why don't we follow the rule of law that we are expecting everyone else to uphold so that we would have people want to aspire to American exceptionalism? We don't have American exceptionalism when we're breaking laws, when we're killing innocent people, when we're breeding terrorism. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And today and tomorrow, we are speaking with the minor party candidates for the U.S. Senate race in Colorado. I want to say, by the way, that the the, the term minor party is actually the term the state uses, the secretary of state uses uh, in regards to parties that include uh, the Green Party. And Arne Mancone is our guest right now. And the Libertarian Party will speak to that candidate tomorrow. So uh, I just want to say that we've done some fact-checking on the fly here, and there there are some targeted audits of the Pentagon budget. Uh, in 2011, for instance, the GAO conducted an assessment of selected weapons programs. So uh, there is some auditing of the Pentagon going yeah, on. Why don't they start with a one po- uh, the F-35, which is a $1.5 trillion airplane that they still haven't been able to get off the ground? Uh, to the issue of the split estate and the notion that uh, if you own your land, it doesn't necessarily mean that you own the mineral resources, maybe the oil and gas beneath your land, and how that syncs up with another plank in the Green Party platform, and that is to ban hydraulic fracturing or fracking in the state. Uh, it could drive out an industry that's a major employer in parts of Colorado, Um and there's the question of, of a taking of property. If you ban fracking, uh, you, therefore mean, you therefore say that uh, oil and gas resources under someone's uh, property can't be accessed. And that's an asset. That's a value. How would you ban fracking in Colorado and, and uh, reimburse those who own the mineral rights? Well, um, <laughs> let me start with the big picture. When I travel around Colorado, Coloradoans want us to stop the Trans-Pacific Partnership. They want us to raise minimum wage to $15 an hour. They want universal health care with Amendment 69, and they want us to ban fracking. We almost had a referendum a couple of years ago that would have allowed us to ban fracking. Those types of questions weren't brought uh, up in the discussion, and we almost had enough signatures to get 75 and 78 amendments that would have given some kind of zoning in order to protect fracking from schools and homes. What I'm hearing around the state is people don't want a 
health risk of having methane gas and natural gas released near their homes, their schools, and hospitals. So we have to worry about the health risks. We have to worry about global warming when sea levels are going to rise by 20 to 50 feet in the next 10 to 20 years. So if, and then I, I don't really think we have enough time to get into the, I'm a little confused about takings of mineral rights when you don't have the mineral rights. Those are not owned by people. Those are owned by businesses. So when you go and buy your house, you think maybe I own what's underneath my house, but yet you don't. A corporation there, there doesn't. They could come in. I want to yeah, say but, that there are individual we're getting mineral into, rights. We're getting into minutiae and details. What's the big issue here is global warming and people want a stop of global warming. I have a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old. What am I supposed to tell them 20 years from now, 30 years from now? And we're having a discussion about takings, when sea levels are rising, when we're having the hottest summer on record, when we're hearing our, our politicians say that they won't ban fracking even though their people do, and when oil and gas industry is uh, controlling the state of Colorado. What people want is somebody who will go into Washington and fight for them, not for the corporations. We are run by what I call a global corporate mafia. They are writing the rules and regulations. They are getting away with trillions of dollars of profit. They are putting individuals have almost $30 trillion in offshore tax havens. You talk about where to find money. There's a lot of areas of where we could find money to either give back to people who are trying to figure out how do I make a living when salaries haven't been going up over, up over the past 30 years. And yet, so much of politics is the art of the detail. So it's one thing to go in with big ideas, and then it's another thing to have to enact those and to work with members of other parties, presumably not in your own. Well, for eight years as a county commissioner, I passed more legislation around the type of things that people in Eagle County wanted, if it was for affordable housing, early childhood development, um, green building, open space, et cetera, et cetera. And you may think that it's about the art of the detail. I think it's about fighting for the voices that aren't being heard. I think it's about speaking truth to justice. I think it's about going into Washington, D.C. and not trying to work across the aisle with Cory Gardner, like Michael Bennett likes to talk about, who gets $14 million from corporations like Goldman Sachs, and then come back to Colorado and not be willing to debate people like me or go around and listen to the people that I'm listening to. What people want, look, this is a historic election. We know this. We're seeing craziness roll out right now. We're seeing the devolution of the two-party system. And what people are hoping for in the next 62 days is that I could get elected, be their U.S. senator, and fight for them every single day for truth and expose the lies and have them come to Washington and do direct action or protesting. Because I tried for 20 years to go to Washington, D.C., write letters to my congressmen, call them up, meet with them, get uh, petitions together, and it didn't work. Arn, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Arn Menconi is the Green Party candidate for U.S. Senate. He's challenging incumbent Democrat Michael Bennett. Tomorrow, the libertarian challenger, Lily Tang Williams. We have also invited Bennett and his Republican opponent, Daryl Glenn, to join us and hope to bring you those conversations in coming weeks. And we'll be right back with some of your observations of climate change. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We've been asking for your observations of climate change in Colorado. These will help inform future stories, part of a long-term reporting project here. Today, though, we would like to share some of your input. Two reporters from our climate team are here, CPR's Grace Hood and Nathaniel Miner. And guys, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks, Ryan. What are people talking about? We're hearing a couple of themes. A big one relates to extreme heat. If you thought this was a hot summer, you're right. Right. So we've been hearing or we've seen several uh, record averages this summer recorded by the National Atmospheric and Oceanic Administration, NOAA. Uh, July is usually the hottest month. And this year it was hotter than any other July um, going back to 1880 when scientists started tracking these temperatures. Um, Also, NASA says warming in recent decades is out of step with any other period in the past millennium. Millennium. Thousand years. And how do they know that? Good question. Um, they analyzed ice core and sediment to reach that conclusion. Uh, and here's a fun fact and an aside. Uh, a lot of that ice comes from both poles of the globe and is stored at the Federal Center in Lakewood. Um, but the point here really is that the hotter the Earth gets, the more everything changes. Droughts, wildfires to the composition of the ecosystem. I spoke with listener Frances Rossi. She's a grandmother of five who lives in Denver. And, you know, she explained to me when it gets really hot, it actually exacerbates health issues for her. She feels fatigued. And I know talking to other people that 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 these things are a concern as well. And I know many people have told me this summer they've said, I can hardly wait till the cool weather comes because I can't sleep at night. So one really big question here is what kind of impact does this have on human health, the heat? What kind of impact does it have on public health? And that's something that health reporter John Daly is going to report on later this week. Nate, this issue of heat is something you looked at in a recent trip to Black Canyon of the Gunnison National Park. We essentially took on the question of climate change in the parks. Yep, that's right. Uh, Rangers there are on high alert when it comes to keeping people safe. Uh, They told me stories of people getting in way, way over their heads at the bottom of that canyon. And I mean, it's a a half a mile deep. So people can get down there and then they realize they've got to get back out. And let me tell you, it's a long climb uh, to get out, especially in the heat of the summer. Uh, The other change down there is that climbers are visiting the park more in the spring and fall. Uh, The problem is that means the days are shorter. So some climbers have found themselves stuck on the wall overnight. Um, So that's just one example. But we wanted to hear from listeners about how warming temperatures are affecting their lives at home. Uh, I spoke with Bill Horger. He lives out near Conifer in the foothills. He's been there for about 30 years. And he's noticed in the last decade or so that gray squirrels are moving up from Denver and pushing out the native Abert squirrels. And that's really unusual, um, primarily because the gray squirrels aren't really that cold tolerant. They do, they do pretty well down in Denver, but not up here in the hills. So he told me these squirrels are really aggressive, uh, so much so that one particular squirrel is eating the wood on his house. Oh my. And uh, we learned on this program in another national park, Rocky Mountain, that turkeys are coming into the park from the foothills. Uh, in search of uh, warmer climes as that park warms. I want to turn to the topic of water. Climate change is expected to have a big impact on supplies in the coming decades. What are listeners saying in that regard? This is really a big topic. So in Colorado, we're already seeing snowmelt happening a few weeks earlier on average. We've got growing cities, uh, water scarcity, and that could really have a big impact on the agriculture industry. Um, Talked with listener Kevin Adams. He's a graduate student at CU Boulder. And he was really thinking about this topic of water and climate 
climate change. One of the things that he wondered about was the Colorado River. And this is a key water supply for many Western states. The Colorado River Basin is one of the places that I think is going to be most affected by this as the Front Range continues to explode in terms of population out here. We're going to have particularly strong pressures to make sure that this water is distributed in such a way that that makes sense for the people that live here and the people downriver as well that, that depend on this water. And, you know, that distribution word is really important. Climate change is starting to shift how states think about Colorado River water supply. There's really a contrast right now between upper basin states that are still planning a lot of water projects and lower basin states where the drought has been quite crippling. There's a voluntary conservation agreement right now in the works between California, Nevada and Arizona. So I'm going to be reporting a story that looks at some of these tensions and how water management is really shifting with the Colorado River due to climate change. Well, Grace, Nate, thanks so much. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks. CPR's Grace Hood and Nate Miner are part of a reporting team here focused on climate change in Colorado. Yesterday, we heard from State Senator Kevin Lundberg, a ranking, ranking Republican who thinks climate concerns are overblown. And you can hear him alongside a climate scientist from Colorado State University at CPRnews.org. And if you want to share your questions, observations, or story ideas, email us, environment at CPR.org. Once again, environment at CPR.org. Just ahead, look who's back from Mars. Sort of. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A year ago, Andrzej Stewart packed up, left Colorado, and headed for Mars. Well, fake Mars. But it felt pretty real to him. Stewart spent the year with five other crew members in a solar-powered dome on Hawaii, It was part of a NASA-funded experiment to simulate what life would be like on Mars. We checked in with Andre before the mission began. Everyone, whenever you look at astronauts in space, you see the spacesuits, you see people launching in rockets. It looks like a lot of fun, but especially with deep space missions, there's going to be hardships as well. And I want to see sort of the whole experience, make sure that I can take the bad as well as the good. Well, today in our series beta test about cutting-edge research in Colorado, Stuart is back with us. Welcome back to Earth, sort of. Thank you very much, and it's a uh, pleasure to be here. I understand that uh, you were on the highway for the first time since emerging from the dome. Uh, As a driver, yes. I've been driven around quite a bit the last uh, few days, but I finally got to experience it again myself this morning. Well, now that you've finished the experiment, could you do the real thing? Could you live on Mars, do you think? I believe so. Um, As I'd mentioned in the clip you just played, uh, part of the reason for me... uh, participating in this mission was to test myself. And after doing this, I definitely believe I would be able to sort of go anywhere NASA would be willing to send me. Because the point here isn't just to run through the logistics, right, of a Martian mission. It's to run through the psychology and the emotions of people in a small group together for a long time. Is that right? Certainly. That's definitely the uh, focus of the mission, For a Mars mission or really any deep space mission, you're taking a small group of people, placing them into a confined space, and throwing a lot of different stressful situations at them. And they need to be able to perform in those stressful situations without falling apart as a crew. They need to be able to stick together um, because they're going to be confined. If there are um, arguments, they can't just escape from them. You can't, you know, go... (laughs) take a drive and blow it off, you have to resolve those problems. NASA wants to understand 
how do these stresses manifest? What does it look like? Can these be measured? And if so, are there ways to intervene and help the crew deal with these stressful situations? Well, this is interesting. How measured were you in that dome? Uh, To what extent could NASA track, I don't know, your emotional state, your heart rate, your calories? Um, To a great level, actually. There are quite a few measurement... um, techniques they used. We wore what are called sociometric badges, and those measure things like temperature, volume. Our, um, volume of your voice? Volume of voice or any sounds that are around. Oh, goodness. Um, sort of our distance between each other. And so the example Kim Binstead, our uh, principal investigator, gives is if, you know, heart rates are elevated and the volume is loud and people are close together, that might be indicative that um, the crew members are arguing about something, for instance. So mm. it gives the investigators some insight. In addition to that, we filled out thousands of surveys um, asking us different things about moods, stresses, things like that. Um, we also wore um, Fitbits to measure our uh, level of, levels of activity and even had hair samples taken. Apparently, you can... Um, measure stress proteins in your hair. So the hair sort of acts as a uh, sort of a time history of the stress you've been feeling over the past month or so. Okay. So the theme of stress seems to be a big one. What was the most stressful moment in that year for you? Um, The most stressful moment for me, I wouldn't really give a moment rather than just more an aspect of the mission, I guess. And that would be the communication with home. Um, just like real Mars astronauts, our uh, communications were delayed by 20 minutes. So there was no telephone, uh, no Skype. Everything was either email or file transfer. So we could record videos and send those home, but everything was delayed by 20 minutes. And that represents the time that it would take to get a message from Mars, which is so far away, back to Earth. Exactly. Because the planets are so far apart, even at the speed of light, it takes minutes to hours for the outer planets for radio waves to travel from one place to another. And what about that 20-minute delay? And I suppose the the lack of more meaningful contact was hard for you. Um, it's just the uh, difficulty and the effort it takes to maintain communication with home, to maintain that connection. Those connections are important. That's your support network, the people who are, you know, the people you know and love and the people who are taking care of you. Was this your spouse? Uh, my spouse, my parents, things like that. Uh, friends at home. And again, it's very difficult. Right now we're having a communication and it's very easy. You can ask me something, I can immediately respond to it. If we were to do this over email, this would take days. Mm. And the tone, you'd never really get someone's tone, would you? Exactly. And even just talking, it's very immediate. Sitting down and writing an email out, that takes much more time. And so it just takes a lot more effort to be able to just communicate with people at home. And as you said, Sometimes the message doesn't completely get passed as well. So that's another difficulty. Describe where you were on the Big Island and describe the dome. Certainly. So we were on the uh, northern face of Mauna Loa. It's the uh, largest peak in Hawaii. And we were in sort of a disused quarry. So a place that had been mined before had been abandoned. Okay. It was up at about 8,500 feet above sea level. So it was actually higher than Denver. So we were at high altitude the whole mission. And it was a very barren area. It's on an area of uh, previous lava flows. So the uh, terrain is very, very barren, very rough terrain. 
lava rock, very difficult to traverse on foot. And so it was very easy to suspend disbelief and feel like I was in another world. There was very little plant life out there, very little animal life. So right. it's not like you could see a Starbucks across the street. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that, and I mean, that's a, um, a good point for real Mars as well is, um, at least from a logistical perspective, there are, there are no Starbucks out there. There's no Walmart. So we had to take everything with us. Um, we did get occasional resupplies, but if things broke, we had to be the ones to fix them with the uh, equipment and tools we had on hand. And what were the living quarters like? The uh, habitat itself is essentially a two-story tall dome. Now there are some rooms partitioned off on the inside, but it's mostly sort of an open plan sort of habitat. Okay. So actually quite spacious feeling once you get inside. Even with your crew members inside? Even with the crew members inside. Now, um, certainly it was... Wasn't always easy to get away from them. There were certain things that were very loud. The uh, treadmill, in particular, was quite loud. So whenever somebody was running, it was very difficult to get away from that noise. I see. And did anyone snore? Not that I'm aware okay, of. Okay, that's probably no, something NASA, that should, <laughs> NASA should screen for in tight quarters. <laughs> when you left the dome, it had to be in a spacesuit, correct? That's correct. We and had. Uh, how were? Yeah. How were those excursions? They were. Um, you get used to the suit after a while. It's very bulky, um, definitely restricts your ability to sense the outside world. Um, the biggest frustration for me was the uh, faceplate, the, um, the, the window I was looking out of, essentially. Yeah. Um, we have two suits. We've got the MXC suit, which is the very fancy um, astronaut-looking suit. And we've got the yellow hazmat suits. Unfortunately, I'm too big to wear the MXC, so I was always out in the hazmat suit. Mm. And as the mission went on, the faceplate deteriorated. So I slowly started losing the ability to see the outside world. And I noticed this on a nighttime EVA we did. We occasionally went out. EVA? Sorry, extravehicular activity. It's sort of the uh, NASA terminology for any time you leave your spacecraft or habitat. Okay. Um, so we did a nighttime excursion to uh, do some astronomy, and this was maybe three months before the end of the mission. I realized I couldn't see the stars through my faceplate anymore. So mm. that was, I guess, the biggest frustration for me was the uh, loss of vis- visibility through my spacesuit. Were you starved for direct sunlight? Personally, not really. I'm sure you'd get a different answer if you were to ask different crew members. Um, I'm sort of a more indoor guy. I don't okay. go out hiking much, so I was happy to be in there and working. So I guess I was uh, well-suited for the mission, I guess. I asked you about stress, but were were there moments when you were moved by the resilience or the beauty of human interaction or um, a crew member's kindness or something like that? Um, I'd say really not any specific moment, but just in general. Um, being isolated from the outside world means we were isolated from a lot of the news of the outside world. So definitely there were events. In an election year. In an election year. (laughs) Um, absolutely. So, um, there were events that we heard about, you know, things that were so tremendous that they, the shock passed along worlds. Like what? Um, the attacks in France, the Mm. attacks in Orlando. Those were major events that we felt a world away, but sort of smaller events, sort of day-to-day news, we didn't hear a whole lot about. So um, a lot of the bad news you normally see in social media or in major headlines, we were very shielded from that. 
except for one type of news, and that was science news. So we actually had a standing request from our mission support to send us a uh, piece of science news every day. Okay. And what that did was it gave us sort of a focus on science rather than focusing on how are people hurting each other. It was more of a focus on science, on achievement. What did we learn as a species today? What cool new piece of information do we know that we didn't know yesterday? And it's a very sort of positive environment. It pushes you to want to, uh, I guess, achieve, to work and push forth the knowledge of humankind. And to see the world through a different lens, I suppose. What's next for you? I actually don't know right now. Okay. I'm, um, this is the first time in a long time that I haven't known what the next step is. And that's both in, a little intimidating, but also very exciting. What was the thing you were excited to do or eat when you left the dome? So the morning we came out, they actually sent up a breakfast for us of fresh fruits and things like that. And my personal request was pineapple. I uh, love Hawaiian pineapple, and this was sort of my chance to have some. Um, after that, we had a week of debriefing, so that was sort of our uh, our moment to sort of enjoy the finer things in life before work picked back up again. Because you'd been eating kind of like freeze-dried stuff or what? Uh, correct. And that being said, I want to put it out there now that space food actually isn't as bad as uh, people think it is. You know, okay. certainly during the Mercury and Gemini days, we were eating food out of toothpaste tubes, but we've gotten to a point where the food is actually quite edible now. And uh, some of us actually became quite good cooks in there. I personally don't know how to cook with real earth ingredients now. I'm having to relearn that. <laughs> Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, certainly. It's been a pleasure. And Jay Stewart just finished up a year-long NASA-funded experiment, part of a six-person crew that lived in a solar-powered dome in Hawaii. The goal was to simulate life on Mars. Vaccines lead our regular feedback segment loud and clear. We talked last week about vaccine safety and why some parents opt their children out. My colleague Andrea Dukakis spoke with Denver's Jennifer Reich, who wrote the book Calling the Shots. Well, listener Phil Booth of NIWAT says the interview didn't focus enough on the risk of immunizations. He wrote at CPRnews.org, There is growing evidence of an epidemic of health issues related to vaccines. There is also a huge push to expand the number of vaccines our children are given and to mandate their use for our children. He went on to point out kids get many more shots than they did in the 1960s. Reich told us she understands parents who choose to forego or delay vaccines because they want to protect their kids. She says there is a risk for a small percentage of people, but she says she spent years weighing all the evidence and her own kids get the full menu of vaccines. I'm compelled that there's some risk in even delaying vaccines. Many of the vaccines that are recommended for very young children emotionally feel hard to give to a baby. And at the same time, those diseases are most devastating for a baby. But I also live in a family of folks who have immune disease. And I've come to believe that my children can absorb minimal risk to protect those in their communities and in their family who are most vulnerable. An update now on the story of a man banned from a college campus. Danny Ladani used to teach mass communication at Adams State University in Alamosa. And ACLU attorney Reed Newrider told us about his case. 
You cannot, especially under the circumstances here where Mr. Ladoni is a vocal critic of the Adams State University administration, ban them, not give them the explanation, and then go out and publicly besmirch their reputation, which is what happened here. The university says it had safety concerns about Ladoni. The ACLU sued, and in a mediated settlement this summer, Adams State agreed to rescind the no trespass order. The school will also pay $100,000 in attorney's fees. Finally, in Loud and Clear, we'd like your thoughts on how walkable Denver is or isn't. Are there spots where you feel unsafe on foot or places that are really well suited to walking? We'll speak to Denver's first ever pedestrian planner in a few weeks. So email us, news at CPR.org, or find us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. And your photos of these walkable or not-so-walkable spots are welcome. So again, news at CPR.org or at Colorado Matters on Twitter. And we'll be right back with a filmmaker's culinary tour of Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The online series The Perennial Plate explores our complex relationship with food. The program has won two James Beard Awards, sort of the Oscars of the culinary world. And in its fourth season, the filmmakers travel across Colorado from a farmer's market in Cortez to a cattle ranch in Del Norte. The way our industry is set up is you can kind of disassociate from the fact that this was a living animal that you're eating you know, while you have your your dogs that you love so much sitting at your feet. And the more I think about it is ranchers are doing that work. They're doing all the grappling and the, it seems like around the ethics of these things. And oftentimes I think um, ranchers get painted as the ones who are the ones not thinking about that. The full 10-episode season of The Perennial Plate will be online by mid-October, though you can see several episodes right now. Daniel Klein is a chef and started the series. Klein joins CPR's Nathan Heffel from St. Paul, Minnesota. Daniel, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. You and your wife, Mira, have traveled to places like Japan, India, Morocco, Ethiopia, even Sri Lanka, all to learn more about these countries' food and uh, the people who make it. What intrigued you about Colorado enough to set a full season here? Well, we had a baby, and a baby gave us some new perspective about how we wanted to travel and film. We quickly discovered that switching hotels every night was not a good idea. So we we developed a plan to go spend a season, like a fall, a summer, a spring, in various places around the world. And we, we've been to Colorado before. We know it's beautiful. We love it. And, and we're able to uh, develop an opportunity to come and spend a, a chunk of time there. And it was, it was a good way with a, a new child to um, go to a familiar place, but also a place that's so full of beauty and splendor. And something a bit more grounded. You could actually, you know, as opposed to traveling all over the place with a child. Yeah, we're headed to Ireland actually on Friday. So that's the next step of this season. But um, somewhere within the United States um, was a good place to start um, and an exciting place right now in the in the food and farming world. So what was it about the food and agriculture here that, that interested you? It, you know, Colorado has so much diversity of of climate. So there's there's the mountains, there's the desert. So across that the beautiful state, and there's all the rivers and the headwaters of many rivers. So it, it just provides a lot of opportunity for very different types of stories, you know, doing um, filming a farm at 9,000 feet and then something, you know, in the desert at more at sea level 
shares a, a very different perspective on, on different types of food that we grow. Now, the Colorado Tourism Office is a sponsor of this season. You have the department's Heritage and Agritourism Program credited at the end of each episode. Uh, did the department reach out to you before you came to Colorado? Um, so, you know, when we were starting this series, we kind of brainstormed places that we would like to go to mm-hmm. um, and then reached out to those places and um, looked for people who, who saw the vision. I mean, it took it took a fair amount of of faith in us. And I really appreciated Colorado for that because we were coming as a series that, you know, tells a very unique perspective, um, and, and create hopefully films that are artistic and, and that share various points of view. And Colorado was really open to us having, being able to tell many different types of stories and not control it, but let us, you know, tell a story about immigrant farmers and water rights and various things that, um, they're very they're just very open to us being creative which was great. Let's talk about some of the the individual episodes uh, starting with the season opener. It's titled For Place and For Animal and follows gender studies professor Carrie Brandt. She married a cattle rancher and it changed her perspective on food. You know, everyone in my family is real animal people and I did my my PhD dissertation was on human horse communication. So my whole life, I've just been like totally obsessed with animals. And then I started thinking, well, why am I eating animals? And I went through this whole sort of experience where I just came to this place where I didn't feel comfortable eating them because I felt like they like their lives as much as I like mine. And so that was sort of who I was when I met David. What about that story interested you? We're always looking for stories that give a new perspective on a subject, something that hasn't been told time and time again, and also where there's a real story behind it. And we saw with Carrie, uh, first, a love story, um, and and how love kind of can is, is the thing that can change our perspective the most. So she was a vegetarian, and she married a cattle rancher, rancher many would see as kind of combating ideals. Um, and through that, I think they're both able to kind of meet in a, in a sort of middle ground, changing from a somewhat more traditional cattle ranching to a bit more grass-fed humanitarian effort, and her also coming in and eventually starting to eat the meat that they harvest themselves. So our, story, our films are always trying to change people's, or get people to think about their perspective around food, not necessarily change it, but open a dialogue. And the dialogue that was happening within that film and the depth of story perspective that was there was really what we're always looking for. So it's perfect. And she says that she lost some friends who were vegan when she married the rancher. And and it it makes me think about how food extends beyond what we eat, how it can also shape relationships with other people. Yeah, I mean, food in the end is, you know, part of who we all are. And and what we eat is is oftentimes even connected to our religion and and a sort of religion in itself. It it expresses our values in in a choice that we make three times a day, you're expressing your values. And so when someone feels passionately about not killing animals, that can be a pretty serious thing for them. Uh, for me, ending a friendship doesn't doesn't seem like the, the best way of convincing someone about it, but um, that was her experience and, and quite saddening for her. Um, also, I just wanted to mention about why we chose this story. We really wanted to start off Colorado with... Um, 
something that's that that seemed like Colorado. So the mountains of Del, uh, surrounding Del Norte and that valley, and cattle ranching, all evocative of the beauty of of Colorado. So that that also played a role in in why we why we chose Carrie Brandt's story. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Daniel Klein. He founded The Perennial Plate, which is an online documentary series about food and the people who harvest it or make it. Uh, There's also a sense of your stories giving a place that food has a place in the home, uh, which you touch upon in this episode titled A Heart Within Us. That's Francisco. He and his wife, uh, Lucia, moved to Alamosa in southwest Colorado from Guatemala in the 80s. And he's describing a plot of land farmed by 11 Guatemalan families in the community there. Briefly, what brought them to Colorado? I don't don't know how familiar you are with the um, unrest in the 80s um, Mm. in Guatemala and in many Central American countries, but um, years of civil war uh, forced many many Guatemalans from their home, and um, they found refuge here in the United States. And that story is, I mean, still so pertinent today of refugees needing needing a place, and how those refugees um, make up what the United States is. So that that story, I don't know, v- very much spoke to us as as something that you know a refugee from the eighties. And how they've lived and changed in America and been welcomed by it. It's very inspiring in today's climate. And how they brought things from Guatemala, not just their culture, but but also food. Correct. Yeah. So you know, you know, as everyone knows, as you taste something that you had from your childhood, it's it's very, it helps to uh, make you feel at home. That sense of home. Yeah. Yeah. So those ingredients that maybe are not as available here in the United States, certain herbs and vegetables. They started growing in their own farm to kind of reconnect themselves with with Guatemala. Your website describes the perennial plate as as being dedicated to socially responsible and adventurous eating. What is socially responsible eating? That's a really difficult question. Um, I don't think there's 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 no set um, way to eat responsibly. I mean, you could say you sh- some people think you should be vegetarian. Some people think you should eat only organic. I don't um, pretend to have the answer to that, but I do think there needs to be a constantly um, evolving dialogue around it and that we do need to think about it. I know that it's not eating, um, if you can, the cheapest food possible and you know, mass, mass production and, and, and chemically laden food. But um, really, I think our series is there to to open up the discussion about what that means and get people to remember the human connection in food. Um, I think in food and in politics and in everywhere, we, we do tend to forget that, you know, humans are growing that food and yeah. animals are 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 dying for it. So it's it's about like remembering what those things are and, and trying to tell a story that makes you like Carrie falling in love with her rancher husband makes you fall in love with the people in them and then and thus like think a little differently about it. And briefly, would you say the perennial plate is is your pulpit since you call yourself a chef and an activist? Yeah, I mean it it started that way and it's really evolved over the years. I started it more from a cooking and food perspective. Um each episode finished with me making a dish and as my wife became involved with it, Mira, um it began to take a, a little more of a human tone and kind of switch from being like just about eating good food to 
to developing that personal connection. And so my, I guess the message has, has become a bit softer. Thank you so much for joining us, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Chef and filmmaker Daniel Klein speaking with my colleague Nathan Heffel. Klein started the James Beard award-winning web series The Perennial Plate. Its fourth season was shot in Colorado. And that's Colorado Matters for today. We are at Colorado Matters on Twitter and CPR News on Facebook. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.